All right, everybody. Good deal. So we're in Deuteronomy chapter 12. Last week we made zero progress <laughs> because we got hung up in Hebrews 10, which is okay. It's good for us to ask those types of questions and, and to get through it. Uh, but the focus that we are looking at right now, this is the section known as specific stipulation starting in chapter 12. The reason is, is because chapters 5 through 11 were the general stipulations that Yahweh, through Moses, is giving to the second generation before they're getting ready to cross over into the promised land. We're getting ready to look at today what is known as the theology of sacred spaces. I've heard very few people ever teach on this in a church setting. Uh, And to me that's bothersome because it really um, causes the person of God and his rule over society to stand out. There's a, there's a certain way of doing things. We've all grown up with uh, family traditions. Was it, did, did, anybody, did anybody grow up eating like this with your fork? Some of you still eat like this with your fork? And then after a while, somebody actually taught you to change it and maybe yeah. a more elegant elbow-in scoop. That's only in Kentucky. Only in Kentucky. We, we eat from the food bag. It's what we do. So, But... But, you know, that might be one of those things. It's just like a family way of doing things, getting into a mold or something like that. That is everything that God wants to establish within Israel. The problem is, is a lot of that gets captured in an idea like tradition. And because people get a hold of it and think, well, it would be really good if we did this. The intentions are good starting out, but it actually becomes something that is so far away from God that it actually misrepresents him to people. And so we see God taking this type of stance with these specific stipulations he's given. We looked at what it looks like for someone to actually listen to God's word and do it, and not just the revival that sweeps through a land because of a leader's decision to follow God's word, but also the abstaining from a certain judgment. It was a grace period that was allowed to come about that the Lord beforehand was was not bringing in that direction it wasn't something i don't want to say it wasn't it was not planned by him from everything we can see he knew how josiah would respond but as far as it being what he knows is going to happen and what he planned to happen those are two drastically different things that's important for us to understand so the whole idea of tearing down everything tear down the graven images tear down the high places of worship get rid of all that stuff the ashram poles all of that get rid of all false objects of worship utterly destroy it wipe it out But if you remember, we have this recurrence of this word place that is constantly used. And it's not that there's anything necessarily unique about the word as if, oh, well, if you know this Hebrew word, all of a sudden all these doors start unlocking for you. That's not it. But it's the fact that Moses uses the word place over and over. The repetition in this passage is the emphasis and the importance of it in itself. So look at verse 4. You shall not act like this toward Yahweh your Elohim. But you shall seek the Lord at the place which Yahweh your Elohim will choose from all your tribes to establish his name there for his dwelling, and there you shall come. Now, this is extremely important because, put your finger here, turn to John chapter 1, the Gospel of John chapter 1. don't have to raise your hand on this but sometimes you may look at the old testament and maybe one of the reasons why you're in here is because you would say a lot of times i am less than familiar with the old testament 
a lot of times it is just kind of nebulous to me. I don't fully grasp everything. And why are they sacrificing this this time? And why has he got to dress this way this time? And those types of things. We, we often come to it with a lot of curiosity. What's interesting is this first century Jewish culture was not like that. They understood their Old Testament. They understood that some of the oppression they had from Rome was probably brought on by God. And yes, there's a lot of things that had been filled in as religious requirements that weren't really Old Testament-wise biblical. But I, but I tell you what, they understood the law. They understood the promise made to Abraham. They understood Moses. And there's something really interesting that takes place here in John chapter 1. Uh, let me see here. Good grief, where's it at? It escapes me. Forgive me. Because I wasn't even planning on going here, but I felt like we needed to. And my dwelling will be with man, and I will tabernacle among him. Where is that at? Man, you guys are really patient. We'll go ahead and, and mark this so that Mitch edits it. Yes, that's that would be part of it, reiterated to the church. But there's something that he says here. Wow, this makes me look awesome. So all pride has just gone out the window. Ah, ah. Verse 14. Sorry, I was looking way further than verse 14. John 1.14, look what it says. And the Word became flesh. There's the incarnation of God, okay, in the person of Jesus Christ. And dwelt. And if you notice in 14, you've got a little marker next to it. If you have a marginal note, what does it say? Tabernacled. Tabernacled. Now, we're familiar with the tabernacle out in the wilderness, right? Tear it down, move it along. God says stop here. They stop. They set it up. All the tribes line up in a certain degree, which is interesting because if you look and you check out the ratios and the numbers, you actually find out that the tabernacle would sit in the middle and they actually would make three biggest tribes on this side, two or three medium size here, three medium size here, the three smallest ones here. They actually created a cross in the desert, which was really cool. So notice, I mean, God's just cool. So <laughs> we can find more about that and I can show it to you guys at some point. Uh, but the whole idea of making a dwelling the whole idea of taking up residence, it's the idea of I've got a tent and I'm going to set it up here and it's going to be amongst you. I'm coming to fellowship with you, engage with you, live life with you, walk in life with you. I'm going to dwell amongst you. It's like somebody buys a house next door and moves into your neighborhood kind of thing. Like That's good. Like Tom? Did you move next to Tom? Well, Tom is far enough down the street where I don't have to deal with it. I'm the 300 block. He's the 700 block. Praise God for the other blocks. So, No, he's not that bad. 
But real quick, my, my ribbing with Tom and everything, I love Tom. He's great. He's fantastic. So, yeah, I just do that because it's fun. So, so does he. <laughs> yeah, I know. So does he. He gets a kick out of it, too. He loves it. Uh, he comes up to me and says, I'm not doing too well today. I said, well, that makes me doing well today. You know, that kind of thing. So, but go back to Deuteronomy 12, verse 5. I want you to see that. Whenever Jesus said something like, and he tabernacled amongst them. That's not just a lost statement. That's not just a clever poetic word of phrasing something. That would ignite in the Jewish understanding mind of this idea in Deuteronomy of God dwelling amongst his people and there being a designated place that goes on there. Okay, Remember guys, the cross is an altar. Remember that Jesus is the sacrificial lamb. And everything that we're going to talk about in Deuteronomy 12 of having a place chosen by God of which worship is to take place, sacrifice for sin is to take place, peace offerings, thanksgiving offerings, votive offerings, all those things are going to go down. All of that is by God's own choosing and designation. All of these things find their fulfillment in the person of Jesus Christ. He is that sacrificial, unblemished lamb. The cross is the altar of which he lays on. He himself is the Holy of Holies. When he dies in his flesh, it rips the veil in two. The whole imagery just completely syncs up with one another like that. So when we see this idea of, in verse 5, a place the Lord your God will choose, from all your tribes to establish his name there for his dwelling and there you shall come that 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 is that is picture perfect there foreshadowing the idea of what would take place in Jesus think about in his ministry throngs of people came to him they knew in him was deliverance they knew in him was healing they knew in him was answers even the pharisees couldn't stay away from him isn't that interesting they didn't like him they didn't want anything to do, but every time he showed up at a party or a gathering or, or, or pizza party or something like that, the Pharisees are always around the corner. They're always sitting in somewhere. They're always taking note of what he says. They're always to each other. Coming to him is the idea. They knew. They were gravitated. So verse 6. Forgive me, I can take a drink. There you shall bring your burnt offerings, your sacrifices, your tithes, the contribution of your hand, your votive offerings, your free will offerings, the firstborn of your herd and of your flock. Now, I don't want to get too much into these offerings because we could spend two or three Sundays dealing with these. But let me just run through a couple of them real quick. Probably the one that is, that is going to be most memorable for us is the idea of the burnt offering. Uh, does anybody remember where the big significant weighty moment of the burnt offering comes from? Isaac. Isaac. The sacrifice of Isaac. In fact, if you wouldn't mind, take your Bible and turn to Genesis 9 just real quick. We won't stay there long. Uh, but we kind of get, it's kind of even more captivating that we don't hear a peep out of Abraham at this moment when he's told what to do with Isaac. So, Genesis 9. Or I'm sorry, Genesis 9 is the first place that we see it. Uh, it's what's commanded of him in Genesis 21, uh, 20 and 21, I think it is. But let's look at 9 anyway. We won't look at that event of Isaac. So 21, 22, forgive me. 
Yeah, and just let me read this to you real quick. If you just want to write it down in your notes, Genesis 22.2, here's what the Lord says to Abraham. He says, Take now your son, your only son, who you love, Isaac, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering. Now that's not just like, oh, it's a sacrifice. It's way more than that. In fact, if you look at chapter 8 of Genesis, the end of 8, of course we dealt with the beginning of 9 today, but the idea of the burnt offering uh, that was offered whenever Noah came off the ark, verse 18 of chapter 8. So Noah went out and his sons and his wife and his sons' wives with him. Every beast, every creeping thing and every bird, everything that moves on the earth went out by their families from the ark. Then Noah built an altar to the Lord and he took of every clean animal and of every clean bird and offered burnt offerings on the altar. If the most weightiest instance where they see this is Abraham's sacrifice of Isaac, the first instance that we see of a burnt offering is here at the end whenever Noah comes off the ark. And so what in the world is the burnt offering? Let's give this to you real quick. Uh, and it's interesting to see that the, the first act of Noah and his family coming off the ark is an act of worship. We're going to sacrifice to the Lord immediately. Uh, what the burnt offering was, was it was a voluntary offering. It was a free offering is the idea. Uh, where you put the hand on the animal's head, and it's the transference of sin idea. You're transferring over. Uh, it make atonement for you, and then you would kill the animal. But after that, you would then skin the animal. Now think about Isaac here, okay? Not only would Abraham put his hand on Isaac and confess sin and transfer that sin so that Isaac becomes a substitution, but then you slay the animal, you slay Isaac, and then you skin Isaac. So that's a whole nother, that's a whole nother world for us when we think about that passage now, all of what's bound up in the idea of a burnt offering. Not only that, uh, let me see here, but then you would cut the offering into pieces and then you would burn it in its entirety and you would do it gradually over a period of 24 hours. So I can't help but, to, I know this sounds so gross, I can't help but to think of skewers. You know, you're just putting it over the fire and you're just roasting it over all day, all night. Why didn't Abraham say something? You know, he, he remains completely quiet. And we know, we know that God has the power to raise him from the dead, regardless of how horrible it is, because God's going to keep a promise. We, we understand that whole idea. But good grief to be asked to do something like that is crazy. So when we talk about burnt offering, we would, we would, we would understand the weight of what that would be here in Deuteronomy. The other one I want to draw your attention to is the idea of votive offerings. And here's why this is important, is because when I did research on what a votive offering is, everybody see that in Deuteronomy 12, 6? The weird thing about a votive offering is that in ancient Near Eastern societies and cultures, votive offerings were only offered to pagan deities. Now that's really interesting here, and here's the reason why. is because when the offering was made to a pagan deity, it was to appease the deity because of something that a person wanted. Now that's weird. And why is that weird? Well, number one, didn't God just say, or didn't Moses just say in verse four, you don't worship God like all these other people worship their gods here. You tear down all their stuff. You get rid of all their methods and their relics and their information. You wipe this place clean and you bring in a holy society to set up a holy means of worship. And what I found out when I looked at it was, is probably the word votive is a bad translation. This is one place where the New American Standard Bible got it wrong. 
It actually shouldn't be a votive offering. It should be a vow offering is what it is. V-O-W, a vow offering. Does anybody have a different translation where it says vow offering? You have it? Which one do you have? In the ESV, it says a vow offering. That's a better translation of that. What a vow offering is, a vow offering is one of two types of what is known under the heading of a peace offering with God. The other one would be an offering of thanksgiving. These were free will offerings. You weren't necessarily mandated to do it. Of your own free will, you could come at any time. And of course, if it's a vow offering, it was what commenced the keeping of a vow before God. I've made this vow to God. I'm going to do this and therefore I'm going to live in this way or make this sacrifice or head off in in whatever this is that I'm committing to him. And once I come to a completion of my responsibility that I've vowed to him to see it through, I'm now going to sacrifice in order to celebrate the end of this vow, saying to the Lord in clear conscience, God, I have kept everything I told you that I would do. Now, does that sound like anything we'd want to do today? No, probably not. Because we'd be scared we don't keep the vow, right? Oh, dang, I didn't do that. But whenever we talk about such things as like Paul taking a Nazarite vow, that whole idea. And we know in that situation you're abstaining from wine and certain types of foods, those things. You let your hair grow out. And then whenever you're done with that, you would cut all your hair off as an end to that vow. You fulfilled that vow unto the Lord. Well, it's the same type of idea. And this offering would take place in order to keep with the law on it. So those are the two things I really want to bring to your attention. Of course, we know the firstborn of your herd and of your flock, the whole idea here about the idea of first fruits, the fact that you would come to the Lord and you would offer of what you have as your firstlings, they would be designated to the Lord. The reason why you do that is to worship God and thank him for what he's provided you for. And the and the other reason behind that is, is it is actually a looking forward to further blessing to come because you have devoted the first portion to God out of obedience. So there's a lot going on there in verse 6. Look at verse 7. There also you and your household shall eat before Yahweh your Elohim. So notice, you don't just come to this place to sacrifice. That's not all that's going on there. If that's all that was going on there, it would be a pretty dreary place. Blood running everywhere, dead animals being taken out. It sounds like the messiest butcher shop you've ever had in your life. Probably not very sanitary, whatever. But in doing that, notice, it's not just that, but you're to eat before Yahweh your Elohim. And what's the word? Rejoice. God commands the people not to just eat food, praise God, but to rejoice over it. Now here's a question. Why? Let's finish the verse. Rejoice in all your undertakings in which Yahweh your Elohim has blessed you. Why would you rejoice? Because he's blessed you. Because it's thankfulness. Because you're in a situation, why are you having to bring an animal to sacrifice? Because you got got sin, right? You got to deal with sin. You've made a commitment to God. You want to worship Him. And so, notice how much of the heart is threaded into this idea of coming to a place to God. Where He is, you come there. You set up shop, you worship, you sacrifice. And then when you're done, you have dinner together, everybody. And the attitude that needs to, the atmosphere that needs to permeate your dining together, needs to be joy. Why is that? Because everything you have is from God. See, God was not just a compartmentalized building on the side of the road that's next to Walmart. If you drive by and we're looking at Walmart, you'd miss it. You see what I'm saying? That wasn't the idea of where worship took place. Worship was an all-encompassing, saturating society 
type of deal. And we saw that from the Shema, right? The Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall worship the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. Teach them to your children. Put them on your doorposts. That's the interesting thing about how Jewish society was to be set up. The Lord was to be reverenced everywhere. There was not a place of your existence or your being that was not to have the Lord's influence in some place. Our society has gotten real good about compartmentalizing. That's one thing that drives me crazy about my wife. We can have disagreement about something. And you know what she can do? She can just go, okay. Puts a little box, closes the lid. She just sits it on a shelf. She goes on about her day. <laughs> and if you're a guy, you're like, I got to fix it now kind of thing, right? And she's just like, I'll get to it, you know, Tuesday. That drives me crazy. Because I got to deal with it now. I can't just compartmentalize it. I can't just, you know, go on with life and get the job done and, and all that stuff. I can't do that. Man, we're real good at doing that with God sometimes. And what's interesting is the way that he is structuring the society when these people move in, you can't do that. You can't run from him. Now, here's why that's important. Number one, it was to constantly keep the heart and the mind and the ways of life devoted to him. That's what he wanted. He wants the heart to be affected towards him. Number two, when sin is committed in an atmosphere and an environment that's been structured in such a way... Boy, does it become serious. Sometimes we look at it and we say, good grief, they committed that sin and God commanded death? Yes. Why is that? Because everything surrounding them pointed them to him to tell them not to do it. It wasn't just their conscience. They couldn't walk out their doors in their house without a reminder of who God is on their door. It's crazy. So the whole idea of sin becomes very heavy, very serious at that idea when you think about that. Notice, you get together, you sacrifice, you eat, you rejoice. Verse 8, you shall not do at all what we are doing here today, every man doing whatever is right in his own eyes. Now, where are you familiar with that phrase? Nope. Timothy? Nope. Nope. Where is it? Who said it? Judges. Judges. It's repeated twice. There was no king in the land. There was no judge over them. And every person did what was right in their own eyes. You know what that means? A lot of people thought they had a lot of good ideas that were really bad. That's what that means. And did, are we familiar with the cycle of judges? That whole book is just a repeating, repeated cycle. The people love God. That generation that loves God dies off. Their children come into power. They stray from God. They refuse to repent. God sends in a nation to discipline them and to take them away from the land because that's what's at stake, right? The land is yours, but it's yours for a possession for you to be there in obeying to me. It, the ownership will never move away from you, but when you stray from the fellowship, I will take you out of that to let you know I'm disciplining you. So they're taken out of that. They finally come to their senses and cry out to the Lord, which means back here they knew about him all along. They just put him on the shelf and moved on as a society. When they do that, God raises up a judge to deliver them, and that society now comes back into a place where they're worshiping God. And then their kids come on deck, and it's the same problem over and over and over. And the condition is, well, I don't want to listen to what God has to say. Here's what I think we ought to do. Call a spiritual timeout and get rid of that person, okay? They're going to lead you into sin pretty quickly. So, verse 9. For you have not yet come to the resting place and the inheritance which Yahweh your Elohim is giving you. When you cross the Jordan and live in the land which Yahweh your Elohim is giving you to inherit, to possess, and he gives you rest from all your enemies around you so that you live in security, verse 11, then... 
It shall come about that the place in which the Lord your God will choose for his name to dwell, there you shall bring all that I command you, your burnt offerings and your sacrifices, your tithes and the contribution of your hand, and all your choice votive offerings, which you will vow to the Lord. And notice that the NASB kind of gives away there the votive offering that you will vow to the Lord is the idea. In other words, there's not just going to be a place to centralize their worship together and their fellowship together and their rejoicing together, but it's going to happen at a moment in history. What's the requirement before they can set up this sacred space? You have to clear the land. You have to clear the land. Why do you think that is? Get rid of all the temptation. Exactly. Get rid of all the junk that would lead you astray so that the land is consecrated to the Lord. In fact, if we read such, I think it's Leviticus 15 or 17, if we read some of those lists that are in Leviticus 15 or 17, and you see him, you shall not do this, 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 and you almost picture God going, kind of thing like this, you know. He's not beating them because he shores it up at the end saying, because the people that I am driving out before you in the land of Canaan, they did all these things. And the land is actually vomiting them out. He actually uses that type of idea. They are throwing up these people out of the land because they have so defiled this land. Man, it's really interesting to think about what's going on in that land. That's why they had to come in with pure worship. That's why God had a structured, methodical means of seeing this happen. Cleanse the sin out first. Get rid of the sin. Consecrate yourself. And then you can worship purely. Very interesting. And let me say this real quick. There's not a lot of consecration talk that I hear sometimes in church. I hear repent of your sin. I hear, uh, well, you shouldn't do that. I hear us becoming legalists with people sometimes. Not this church in particular, but oh, well, that was so bad. You know, we kind of shame our fingers at them and that type of thing. But the idea of consecrating yourself. Have you ever sat down and maybe, maybe thrown up this prayer? Lord. It's kind of what we did today. Lord, if there's something in my house, my life, that I'm involved in, my recreation, my marriage, things that are impure, things that are not pleasing to you, will you please show them to me? Bring them to the surface so that I can see them for what they truly are from your eyes and get rid of them. Would we watch the same movies we watch? Would we listen to the same things we listen to? Would we entertain some of the talk radio that we hear? You know, would, would we uh, spend the leisure time that we have with our kids in the way that we would normally do that? Or would that change? You see what I'm saying? Asking God to get involved in exposing those types of things is asking for his guidance and consecration. How can my life be more fully devoted to you as a life full of worship, a life that means something, a life that actually matters in your eyes? I think that's a good prayer to pray. Sometimes we would think some of the most harmless things, you know, oh, well, there's no harm in that. We actually find out there's a lot of harm in that. We just didn't realize it because we never asked God's opinion on it. We were only doing what was right in our own eyes. Getting God involved in a situation like that, coming to him humbly about that, big deal, very big deal. So now let's look at verse 12, and we're going to stop there. Um, no, we won't. We'll keep going. Um because at some point we've got to break and see where the theology of sacred spaces gets tainted. And that's an important point for us to see. 
Now let's see here, verse 12. And you shall rejoice before Yahweh your Elohim. Notice the word rejoice, just like in 7, verse 7 comes up again. Uh, your sons and your daughters, your male and your female servants, and the Levite who is within your gates, since he has no portion or inheritance with you. In other words, since he doesn't have any designation of land like the other tribes are getting, there were cities for the Levites to live in, but they had no plot of land that was actually claimed by them because they were in worship rotation as interceding on behalf of the people with sacrifices and those types of things. Notice that you have a stream here of your entire household. Didn't matter if it was your kids. Didn't matter if it was the priest who was sacrificing for you. Didn't matter if it was your hired help. Everybody, everybody was devoting themselves to the Lord at this. This was just something that the household led in devotion to the Lord. Verse 13, be careful that you do not offer your burnt offerings in every cultic place you see. You don't worship God like everybody else does. Or you don't worship God like everybody else is worshiping their false gods. Verse 14, but in the place... Notice place is mentioned twice, end of 13, beginning of 14. But in the place which Yahweh chooses in one of your tribes, there you shall offer your burnt offerings, and there you shall do all that I command you. Now, some scholars believe that the use of burnt offerings in 13 and 14 is not necessarily that there's a massive emphasis on the idea of burnt offerings, but that the use of the phrase burnt offerings is encompassing of all the other things that he brought up in verse 6. Does that make sense? So he's kind of used it as a generalization. Um, moving on here, verse 15. However, you may slaughter and eat meat within any of your gates, whether you do, uh, whatever you desire. According to the blessing of Yahweh your Elohim, which he has given you, the unclean and the clean may eat of it, as of the gazelle and the deer. Only you shall not eat the blood. There's that principle from Genesis 9 we talked about. You are to pour it out on the ground like water. Remember, the blood is the life. Now, here's why this is interesting. You may come across verse 15. You might think, okay, wait a second. He just said you're not allowed to sacrifice anywhere like all the cultic practices did on the high places and all that. But yet he's telling me that I can slaughter and eat meat anywhere that I wish within my gates. You either have to conclude that within the gates is the sacred space that God has set apart for his name to do that. But you can't say that yet because they haven't conquered the land and established that. So the timing is off. Everybody see how that wouldn't work? Or you have to say that God is contradicting himself. How in the world would that work? There's a big difference between sacrificing an animal to a false god or saying, well, I'm going to worship God, but I'm going to do it wherever I please instead of going to the place that he said to go. So I'm just going to go over here in my backyard and do it because I don't want to travel all that way. I'm kind of tired, being lazy about it or whatever like that. Doing that and saying, I'm actually killing this animal for the purpose of having meat to eat. Does everybody see that there's a difference in that? Just because you're slaughtering an animal doesn't mean that it's being slaughtered under worship to God. You should still thank God for it. We're not going to deny that. But there's a big difference between committing an animal and worship, which seems to be that that was a lot more than just what we're going to have for dinner over the next few days. Everybody got that? Okay, maybe that's a much bigger deal than what I think it is. So, now here's what we're going to do. We've got 10 minutes. Let's go ahead and start this. The violation of the theology of sacred spaces. How, how in the world did this happen? Let me give you some of this. I think I've read this to you before, but I just, just if you wouldn't mind, just listen. If you want to jot some notes, that's fine. But I think all this will resonate with you. It's real, real short. There's actually always been a theology of sacred spaces. This is exactly what Eden was whenever God made it. It's a place where he walked freely amongst people. Uh, we know that angels were obviously existent there. 
uh, and running around. We know that a, a, chain, a cherubim with a flaming sword was guarding the way back into it so that they couldn't get back in and eat of the tree of life and be perpetually sinful. We know that. Also, Mount Moriah, where God told Abram, go, sacrifice your son. Isn't it interesting that he didn't just say, take Isaac and go over there and do this? There's a reason. Some people actually believe that Mount Moriah is the temple mount. They can't really prove it. But some people actually believe, you know what, there's a lot of similarities in geography if you take a look at it. Some people say yes, some people say no. Uh, it was also believed to be the same location uh, as the Temple Mount in Solomon's time. Uh, Yahweh chooses where he is to be worshipped. And so now we are going to look at uh, a very interesting collection of verses. Uh, I want to get through them. We have 14 different mentions of the violation of this principle here. Okay, and so let's go to the first one. 1 Kings chapter 12, 1 Kings 12, we're going to look at 25 through 33. 1 Kings 12, verses 25 through 33. Now let's think about what happens here. And if you will maybe look over at verse 16 in this chapter, you may have a heading. If you have the New American Standard, it will say something like, The kingdom divided, Jeroboam rules Israel. Do you have something like that there? Yeah. We go to the northern tribe. Okay, the northern tribe. What was the reason that the kingdom became divided? Remember, it went from Saul to David to Solomon, and then it split. Why was that? Exactly. Because Solomon in his old age married many different women and his heart got led astray and he ended up erecting all these different idols. In fact, if you remember, the interesting thing about King Josiah's uh, revolution that he was leading there was it says that he tore down the idols and the high places that Solomon established in his day. He was recorrecting and repenting of Solomon's sin at that time. That's how... Um, Hungry, on fire, zealous that Josiah was in his time after he had heard the first five books. He looked at everything around him and said, man, this is wrong. It's an awesome time. So yeah, you have a kingdom that is divided here. Look at verse, uh, and, and real quick, how did that happen? You have Rehoboam in the south, and Rehoboam's region, actually, I've got maps. I forgot. I've got maps now. I forgot to bring them. I have a map. Uh, I'm real excited about it. Uh, Rehoboam's region in the south was actually made up of where we would know Jerusalem is, so the tribe of Judah is down there, and also Benjamin. The other ten tribes gravitated more north, and that became designated as Israel. So northern tribe, Israel, southern tribe, Judah. Some of you know this. This is old hat for you. That's fine, but I just want to be thorough with everyone. Verse 25, chapter 12 of 1 Kings, verse 25. Then Jeroboam built Shechem in the hill country of Ephraim and lived there. And he went out from there and built Penuel. Jeroboam said in his heart, now watch this, and here's where we're going to end because I want this thought to be on your mind so that when we pick up next week and we got our maps with us, we can actually see what's going down here. But here is his thinking. Remember the whole idea. Everybody did what was right in their own eyes. Now the kingdom will return to the house of David. Now remember, Jeroboam rules the north. Rehoboam rules the south. And so he built Shechem up there, and here's his reasoning. Wait a second. As Israelites, we have to worship our God. 
And so everybody's going to say, we've got to return. And notice he uses the word David. It's very interesting. Now the kingdom will return to the house of David. If this people go up to offer sacrifices in the house of Yahweh at Jerusalem, then the heart of this people will return to their Lord, even to Rehoboam, king of Judah, and they will kill me and return to Rehoboam, king of Judah. Now notice what Jeroboam's heart is saying. There is a sacred space designated for worship. And when it comes time to worship, everybody has to go there. And when they go there, they're probably going to experience conviction of sin. And if that happens, they're going to fall back under the leadership of Rehoboam, my arch enemy, and they're going to come back and kill me because they're going to see me as leading them and a revolt is wrong. So notice, it is, it is a decision on self-preservation. Everybody see this? It's nothing but selfish. Look at verse 28. So the king consulted, and that's interesting. He consulted. Do you think he consulted Yahweh on this? Nope. Here's what's interesting here. Here's the first problem. I went looking for advice from everywhere but God. Okay? Notice, and made two golden calves. Uh Uh-oh. What does this sound like? And here's what it says. And he said to them, It is too much for you to go up to Jerusalem. Behold your gods. Now, just because it's pluralized automatically should have given you some problems. Okay? Oh, Israel that brought you up from the land of Egypt. Does anybody just kind of see the word stupid across that verse? (laughs) You can't help but to sit here and go, what are you thinking here? Really? Really? This is the conclusion. How do you not see that the golden calf is the same violation that Aaron brought into the situation? You see what I'm saying? And look what it says. Verse 29, he set one up in Bethel. And the other he put in Dan. And what we're going to see when I bring that that, uh, map is you will see right where the marker is between Judah and Israel, right where the line would be. Here sits Bethel. You travel yourself all the way up is Dan. What was the problem? They have to go back to Jerusalem to worship because that's the sacred space that God designated. So if I put a place there where they can worship before they ever have to cross over that line and get in Jerusalem, they can worship there. God will be okay with that. And you know what? If they're further up in the north, let's make it easier on them. Let's out of convenience manipulate how people worship God. Everybody see that? Let me, let me leave you with this real quick and then we'll finish. Convenience is always the worst reason to make a decision. Yeah. It always is. Let me tell you where I find it the most is young couples who are on their way to get married and they shack up with one another. Yeah. Well, it was more convenient that we lived under roof one roof instead of having two uh, uh, rent payments or something like that. It was just more convenient. Well, it was just more convenient if we put our cars together on one insurance. Well, it was just more convenient if we were sharing one bank account. Well, it was just more convenient because our incomes would help one another. You find that money motivated it. Who's the decision maker? Everybody see that? It's completely devoid of God. Or, let's go back to what we were talking about earlier. It was able to compartmentalize a part of our lives. I said, you know what? God's opinion probably not welcome here. We can actually do this without him. I tell you, our pride knows no bounds sometimes. Decision-making out of convenience is always bad. Next week, we will pick up here in 1 Kings, and we will see this, and we will watch the unfolding of the, the violation of sacred space. So are there any questions real quick? we got like a minute. Go for it. Not necessarily a question, but I do think it's interesting that God actually gave Jeroboam the north country. Yes. 
he's the one that put him in place up there and said, I'll take care of this. Yes. And yet he's the, he wanted to preserve himself without God. Uh, yes. Without God's help. That is exactly right. That is exactly, Remember, the split of the kingdom was a discipline. That was God's, God's choice. Yes, it was God coming in and he was essentially spanking uh, Solomon's child for Solomon's sin. You know, and why did why did do everybody remember why God spared Solomon? Because of David's faithfulness. See, that's interesting. So we talk about generational repercussions, cause us to live a little bit more soberly when uh, we're raising our kids. Choices we make now could come back to haunt them later. So, excellent point. Very excellent point. Yeah, that's the amazing thing. God gives us everything that we already need to succeed. Why we would ever look anywhere else or make a decision apart from him is, is should be beyond us. So let's let's uh, pray. Father, thank you for our time together. Just looking at these things. Uh, Father, the uh, just coming into this idea of sacred space where you desire to worship. I thank you, God, that the Holy Spirit has been deposited into every one of our hearts. Uh, that, Lord, we can worship anywhere because all creation is yours. You call us together not to forsake the assembly of ourselves. But, Lord, at any time we can offer up praises to your name and give you glory. Uh, help us, Father, to comprehend these things and maybe meditate on these things throughout the week. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay.